Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I am Laura Coates, and this is CNN Tonight. And this was Alethea Ramirez. She was 10 years old. And we've just confirmed that she was one of the victims killed in the Uvalde school massacre. She was only a fourth grader. And her father says she loved to draw and wanted to be an artist. And this was 10-year-old Jace Louis Vanos. I want to get his name right because I want to honor him. Jace Louis Vanos. Another victim identified this evening. And yet another 10-year-old, McKenna Lee Elrod. Her family confirmed to CNN this afternoon that she too died in the attack. Now for them and for all the victims, we now must ask some very tough questions after what we heard today. And I know that I'm an anchor, but I'm also anchored in the fact that I am a mother of a second grader, of a third grader, an eight-year-old and a nine-year-old who sends my children just like you to school every single day. And I want to know, did the Texas school gunmen effectively have total freedom to walk in and start killing those 19 children and two teachers? Now, despite the massive law enforcement response, when you hear me say words tonight like, or you hear the words said, like police say, over the course of this hour, I want you to keep those words in mind more than you might otherwise. Because the official version of what happened is is changing. And we're going to now examine all the new questions that are coming in as a result of what we continue to hear. So how did we go from a school resource officer supposedly engaging with the gunman to no one actually ever getting in his way? Twelve minutes passed from the time he crashed his truck at 11.28 a.m., opened fire on two people across the street at a funeral home, and found an unlocked door at 11.40 to walk into the school and begin a full-on rampage. Now, law enforcement, we are told, made entry at 11.44. That's four minutes after the gunman first got inside of this school. And yet, this unbelievable slaughter would not end for up to 60 awful minutes. Think about that for a moment. As a parent, You don't want your child to be afraid for 10 seconds. To think that a period of 60 minutes may have gone by, a child enduring any aspect of it, until a U.S. Border Patrol tactical team arrived and went in. We have questions about that timeline. And there are other startling questions about the response before the Border Patrol team killed the gunman. A fourth grader at Robb Elementary tells a Texas TV station that while he and others were hiding, quote, when the cops came, the cops said, yell if you need help. And one of the persons in my class said, help. The guy overheard and he came in and shot her. 
The cop barged into that classroom. The guy shot at the cop and the cops started shooting. Now, if that account is accurate and terrifying, if it's accurate, it raises the possibility that at least one officer may have unwittingly revealed the hiding place of a victim. But that, that is far from the only question about protocol. All his families faced absolute agonizing torture, being held back by police, with some parents even pleading to let them go inside themselves. Now, what I'm going to show you is hard to watch, but it's the reality of what happened. A truly heartbreaking scene for everyone. And you might be thinking this is all because the Uvalde Police Department and the school police, well, they're not used to something like this. And so maybe holding them back was something that they were thinking was necessary to do. We're talking about a town of 16,000 people, 16,000 people. Two officers who work in that small city were shot during the response, and thankfully they will recover. Yet, as a nation, we are all now used, used to this obscene idea that our nearest school could be the target of a madman. And this is what happens more than two decades after Columbine? Nearly a decade after Sandy Hook? We need to know how this hell continued to rage for an hour, more than a half a century, after this United States of America first realized that schools are no sanctuary from bullets. I have a mother and her son here tonight, and you can see them so happy in this photo. Look at this photo of this little boy kissing his mom. He is a student in the second grade who hid not far from where his schoolmates were being killed, everyone. I was praying, thinking, why is this happening? Why is this happening? My full conversation with them in just a few minutes, but first, we got to get to the astonishing new revelations in this timeline that can only be described as a timeline of terror. And CNN's Ed Lavendera brings us the very latest from Uvalde. Two days after the mass shooting at Robb Elementary, the story of what happened when the gunman arrived on the campus has fundamentally changed. There's a lot of possibilities. I don't have enough information to answer that question just yet. The new details revealed in a bewildering press conference with the Texas Department of Public Safety. He walked in unrestructed initially. He was not confronted by anybody to clear the record on that. Police revised earlier reports that the gunman engaged with a school resource officer. According to investigators, 12 minutes passed when the suspect crashed his grandmother's truck on Tuesday morning and when he entered the school through an unlocked back door. He went in at 11.40. He walks, and I'm at an approximate 20 feet, 30 feet. He makes a right. He walks into the hallway. He makes a right, walks another 20 feet, turns left into a schoolroom, into a classroom that has doors open in the middle. Officers are there, the initial officers, they receive gunfire. They don't make entry initially because of the gunfire they're receiving. Police say most of the gunfire was in the initial minutes. There was a standoff. 
for almost an hour before police forced their way into a classroom and killed him. The question remains why they couldn't get to the gunman sooner. Can you explain to us how he was barricaded? I hear you. Because we've been given a lot of bad information, so why don't you clear all of this up? Like shooting, shooting. The brother was like hitting the dirt on the floor and just the, like, bull the, the bullets were hitting close bullets from where? That I guess he was. Um, I guess he was coming from the from the school this way. Parents were frustrated. Police wouldn't let them help save their children, despite safety procedures that keep people away from an active crime scene. Jesse Rodriguez lost his daughter in the shooting. He's angered by what he saw officers doing outside the school. They should have moved in. You know, I don't think they had a right to sit there on their ass waiting. You know, they should have moved in faster. In all, more than 100 federal officers responded to the shooting, in addition to local police. For one young third grader hiding from the gunman, it seemed like even more. We saw were thousands of police and barbatrol coming into the cafeteria, and we were all hiding behind a stage in the cafeteria when it happened. Bend. The Uvalde School District did have a safety plan with a system in place to provide a safe and secure environment. 21 measures, including a locked door policy. We're still trying to establish if there was any type of locking mechanisms on the doorway from the inside of the classroom because the gunman was able to barricade himself. Laura, Texas DPS investigators say they are trying their best to process all of the information to provide an accurate account of what happened. Uh, but that hour inside the school is just simply uh, an, an area where we don't have clear answers at this point. We know that there were as many as seven different officers there in the hallway near the room where the gunman was barricaded. But what happened during that hour, the decisions that were made to, to not go in uh, for an extended period of time, exactly uh, how all of that unfolded is still just not clear tonight. Ed Levandera, thank you so much. With the police response raising a lot more questions, let's get insight now from two law enforcement veterans, Andrew McCabe, former deputy director of the FBI, and Ed Davis, former Boston police commissioner. Gentlemen, thank you for being here this evening. I want to begin with you, Andrew, because the number and the phrase that is sticking in my mind is 60 minutes. 60 minutes. Is there any way to explain or try to help people to understand, if not justify, why there would have been such a long period of time and why they were not intervening sooner? Well, Laura, the officials uh, from uh, uh, the scene have told us today that essentially the theory was they had three officers who followed the suspect into that classroom. They maintained a position of cover outside the classroom. They drew his fire and they felt that by doing so, they uh, essentially pinned him down into that classroom and prevented him to, from going from other places, going to other places in the school. Uh, and that is certainly a theory. We'll see if that bears out. The question still remains. Uh, whether or not they could have prevented additional loss of life by following essentially the protocols of an active shooter event, which say you have to get in front of that offender, that shooter, that attacker as quickly as possible to try to neutralize the threat. We now know that an hour went by where that didn't happen until the tactical team came in. And uh, that is a decision that they are going to have to live with and that I'm sure many, many parents are questioning uh, tonight. 
Ed, when I hear about the words theory that we're talking about, the idea of why we're getting new information, and it's one thing to have new information trickling in and to get better clarity on certain aspects, but we're hearing a shifting police narrative in many respects. What is your assessment of what you've been hearing? Well, Laura, it's um, it's infuriating to see armed police officers, heavily armed officers, standing on a perimeter. Uh, when there's uh, this type of carnage occurring. Um, and, and I agree with Andrew, it is possible they had pinned him down and um, were waiting for uh, reinforcements. But the problem we have right now is a lack of command and control by the people who are in charge of this investigation. There is has been fought more than 48 hours, 50 hours that have elapsed since the incident happened, and we still don't have a clear timeline on what happened. Uh, there's more information coming out today but it was coming out in, in dribs and drabs, and it wasn't logical in its presentation. And the idea that you're gonna have days or weeks as a, as a commander of this kind of an incident, that you're gonna have days or weeks to un, unravel what happened and give a full report is not realistic. There's a vacuum of information right now out there. That's the fault of the authorities who are running the investigation. And that needs to be filled because if it's not filled, it's gonna get worse and worse every hour that goes by. And of course, part of the reason for that, Andrew, as he's articulated, is the idea of what is the collateral damage of that, the idea of people not trusting in or under having their own vacuum undermining the credibility. And with all the questions raised, you know, and the idea as you describe what the protocol ought to have been, you know, what will this do for the public's confidence and trust, knowing that really the nation right now is reeling, wondering if another school might be next, God forbid. Well, it's devastating, Laura. Like, first of all, we know that another school will be next. That's the that's what we've learned over this tragic history of mass shootings and active shooter events in, in schools. Uh, that's a different issue. But in terms of this event, the um, it is really unfortunate that the folks who are communicating with us now are doing so in such a confusing, conflicting way that they are undermining their own credibility and at the end of the day, they're going to put forth a conclusion that the parents and the victims of this event are going to very naturally question. Um, you know, just earlier on CNN, we had uh, Lieutenant Olivares, who was interviewed. And when asked about the delay of getting into the room and confronting the shooter, you know, each each question is answered with a, a high degree of defensive uh, statements about telling us why, you know, we should uh, respect and accept the decisions that were made on the ground by the officers, officers who responded. That's not really your role right now. What they should be doing is telling us exactly what happened and let people make their own decisions about whether or not they think it was appropriate uh, later on down the line. But we are not getting clear information from them. Um, the, the police chief is uh, absolutely yeah. right. Their, their failure to communicate clearly is undermining their effectiveness here. Andrew McCabe, Ed Davis, thank you both so much. We'll be hearing a lot more from both of you. I appreciate it. Thank you. The question now, with all the questions we have, what about the children? How do they respond to this gunman's declaration of virtual war on their school? I want you to hear more from one of the second graders who survived the attack, and he joins me along with his mom, who desperately waited for word on his fate. That's coming up.
So Mitch McConnell tells CNN that he's directed Texas Senator John Cornyn to work with Democrats on a, quote, bipartisan solution, unquote. Meanwhile, Democrat Joe Manchin says that this time, quote, feels different. Now, Dana Bash has been talking with sources on the Hill, and Doug High was in the trenches for a big stretch of this history when he worked for Eric Cantor, the former House Majority Leader. Welcome to both of you tonight. Thank I'm you. glad you're here. You know, when I hear this phrase that this time feels different, Dana, I naturally mm -hmm. wonder what about this feels so different, given that in so many tragedies that we have seen over the course of just modern American history, that the reason this is so tragic, in part, is because we have seen this before. What about this politically, though, has felt different on Capitol Hill to try to urge McConnell to say, now it's time for a different type of solution? It's, it's understandable uh, to be skeptical, even cynical. And the answer to that question is even those who have been skeptical and even cynical that anything can get done are singing a different tune uh, behind the scenes. And just the fact that CNN has this great reporting, our Hill team talked to Mitch McConnell, uh, the Senate Republican leader, that he tasked John Cornyn, uh, the senior senator from here in Texas, to try to work on a bipartisan bill that can get through, that can get 60 votes, in order that's what's going to be needed, 10 Republicans, in order to get past the Senate. That in and of itself is a big deal. Does it mean that something will get done? Absolutely not. It doesn't mean that. But the question is going to be, what's the it? How narrow could the scope be? For example, uh, after a shooting here in Texas several years ago, there was a very narrow bill that did pass on a bipartisan basis with John Cornyn, along with uh, Chris Murphy, the Democratic senator from Connecticut. They worked to fix what's known as the NICS system, uh, the instant background check, the national system, which uh, that shooting showed that there was a, something fell through the cracks. So in this case, Laura, could it be that the fact that an 18-year-old was allowed legally to buy a gun here in Texas, could they change the law like they did, like then-Governor Rick Scott did in Florida? Maybe. Could there be a red flag law signed here uh, like Governor uh, Ron DeSantis did in Florida? Perhaps. It's those kinds of uh, maybe Ooh. narrow, much narrower than what you saw pass in the House, but maybe potentially yeah. significant that they could work on. Doug, what do you think the it will be? And, and does it feel different in terms of the dynamic? We know we've got quite a, a partisan stalemate in so many respects, and certainly issues surrounding the Second Amendment and whether people think it's gun control or it's a call for gun confiscation, the way that this umbrella term has been misconstrued and applied depending upon the side you are on the, on the issue. Is the it that could possibly come out of this something productive? For both parties? What do you think? Yeah, I, I sure hope so. And it looks like red flag laws may be a good place and a, and a safe place for Republicans to go to politically where they can work with Democrats. And, you know, I think it was really smart of Dana to mention uh, Rick Scott and Ron DeSantis. I'd also add Tim Kaine. Um, you know, he was the governor of Virginia when we had the Virginia Tech shootings. When I worked for Eric Cantor, whenever the Virginia Tech shooting would come up, the tone of how we would talk about people who worked at the time in, in the Virginia delegation would talk changed. Um, they, they became subdued. They talked with awe and respect about the process that Tim Kaine uh, brought in this to bring disparate groups and disparate um, interests together to get something done. And we, we hear so often, uh, Laura, Dana knows this so well, um, especially around issues like this, that we have to do something. 
And when you talk about doing something without being specific, it makes it very hard. I know when when Dana would call me from time to time in really tough uh, moments in the Capitol, I could tell her about what we wanted to do and what we hoped we could do. It was very hard to talk about what we could do and what we would do. We're starting to see, see some difference in that now. And I think red flag laws may be the, the first place where we can go with that. You know, one of the concerns I have and in, in just thinking about this story, and we're talking about the really tough questions tonight, Dana, the questions about the police response. Mm-hmm. Um, I do wonder and have concerns about whether the questions themselves will translate into a scapegoating that will make Congress mm-hmm. say, well, this is not for our work to do. We would have operated differently. Yeah. This is really about a policing issue. When you look at this notion, Dana, do you think that there are any sort of exit ramps that they will use as ways to say, we can't do anything about it? Is that a concern right now? There are always exit ramps if that is what politicians are looking for. We know that since Nothing was done after Sandy Hook. Nothing was done uh, after Parkland uh, on a national level. It was done, as I said, on the state level and, and on and on and on. So certainly they are there. Uh, I was talking to a law enforcement official today who said, uh, maybe b- because this person is not a politician and is speaking in a somewhat logical fashion, both things can be true. It can be true that the law enforcement didn't uh, proceed the way that they were supposed to following protocol, as you were just talking about in your last last segment. It can also be true that this gunman, who uh, was a teenager, uh, maybe should not have had the gun and perhaps these laws should be looked at or that the a red flag law can be talked about or put into place so that people are encouraged when they see uh, somebody who uh, is uh, is unwell and perhaps shouldn't get a gun, uh, that they can be uh, reported so that they don't get a gun. All those things can be true at the same time. Anyone else's both can be true, that they can walk and chew gum at the same time and they can give thoughts (laughs) and prayers while they're thinking of a prayer for relief that is specifically codifying Mm -hmm. what we need in legislation. Dana Bash, Doug High, thank you so much to both of you. Thank you. Thanks, Laura. And coming up, what a second grader had to do in order to survive the Rampage on Tuesday, a second grader. He and his mom will join me next. Well, the National Rifle Association is still going full steam ahead with its annual meeting, and it begins tomorrow in Houston, Texas. And that's just a four-hour drive from the latest mass shooting site. Former President Donald Trump and other leading Republicans scheduled to speak at the three-day event The NRA says it's gearing up to, quote, reflect on these events, unquote, in Uvalde. But I wonder if this is just code for deflecting, not reflecting, and maybe denying the tragedy at hand, at least in a way that's productive to the American people. I want to bring in Ryan Bussey, former firearms executive and author of Gunfight, My Battle Against the Industry That Radicalized America, to take us inside the gun industry's mindset and perhaps most importantly, the way forward. Ryan, thank you for being here. When, when you hear about this conference happening, and again, this was obviously scheduled prior to the tragic events of Uvalde, and it, was, it happens coincidentally to be in Houston. But what's not a coincidence is the power of the lobbying efforts of the NRA and the firearm industry. What is your reaction to the stance that they have taken consistently over time, and, and what can be done about it? 
Well, my reaction is, as I detail in, in my book, I'm, I uh, spent much of my career fighting against the NRA from the inside. I think that the stance that the NRA has taken after every mass shooting, instead of being a part of the solution, they have decided to be a part of the problem. And in so doing, they've created a politics that has divided our country. And, and I'm of the opinion that much, if not all, of the political division and rancor and chasm that has divided families and workplaces and now invades our school board meetings and everything that we care about lies at the feet of the NRA. And it's because they've decided to say not just no, but hell no, after every single after every single one of these horrible events. Well, what do you say to the retort that they often speak of? And the NRA has been very clear in saying, no, this was not our doing. We are an advocacy organization hoping to solidify and affirm and uphold the Second Amendment. And that's the right to bear and, you know, carry arms. And so why do you connect what's happening with the NRA? This is individual people. What's your reaction to that? A uh, couple things. First off, um, we live in a complex democracy. And yes, we we all enjoy freedoms. I'm a gun owner. I, I enjoy that freedom. I hunt and shoot with my boys every chance I get. But any reasonable citizen knows that any freedom must be balanced with responsibility or our country is going to get badly out of whack. And it, and it feels pretty, pretty out of whack to me right now. With regards to what I think, you know, an important an important point to bring up, Laura, is that for a long time in the industry, as late as 15 years ago, the industry itself, um, through the National Shooting Sports Foundation, which controls the lar- largest trade show, um, SHOT Show, would not allow tactical gear or tactical weaponry to even be displayed at its own trade shows in the consumer part of the show. Um, and they did that for obvious reasons, because somewhere in the DNA of decent people, you know that prol- proliferating that throughout a society the way we have and mixing it with volatile politics the way we have is going to lead to disastrous outcomes. Um, now, the NRA for political gain and for monetary gain, and then the industry following for profit gain has let loose of all those old norms and um, our country and, and responsible gun owners um, everywhere. And, and sadly, those beautiful little kids are paying the price. So what to you would be the way forward here? Because you know, you speak about the idea that there are some, there is some form of internal regulation in the industry. There is some notion about um, questions that are happening about the culpability of gun manufacturers or those who are within an industry that you know so well. Tell me, what do you think is the path forward? What are the most basic legislative measures that you think might be a part of the what we know to be at least the beginning of a conversation on the path to a possible bipartisan solution? Well, I think the first path is that responsible gun owners have to stand up and they have to say the NRA and this craziness does not represent us. I am one of these people. There are millions of these people across the country. It is time to stop being silent. It is time to stop being led around by the nose by a a, a group that cares that cares nothing about this country. Um, it, It cares about political power and money. And it's time to be done with that. So it's time for gun owners. I think we have to kick down the door and say this can happen. We have to send the message that there isn't a singular voting block of gun owners out there like the NRA says there is. That's just not true. With regards to specific actions, I think there's some just absolute no-brainers that essentially 80% of the country does not argue with. First, universal background checks. That has to get done. It should have been done long ago. It should have been done with the mansion to me legislation after Sandy Hook, it needs to be done now. Every single sale needs to run through a background check. Um, And one other thing, that's not anti-gun to say that. 
that's just pro-responsibility. The NRA likes to say, likes to castigate people like me who simply advocate for responsibility saying, well, that's anti-gun or you're being anti-freedom. No, I'm not. I'm done with those definitions. And so does every single reasonable gun owner needs to be done with those definitions as well. The other one, red flag laws, we need to strengthen them. Ryan Bussey, thank you. I'll be curious to see how the NRA does indeed reflect on what you've just spoken about. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you so much, Laura. My conversation with a second grade survivor, I can't even believe I have to say that phrase, a second grade survivor of the shooting and his mom, next. My next guest is an eight-year-old little boy. Edward Timothy was in the room near the classroom where a gunman murdered other children. Now, Edward Timothy didn't know what was going on, but he knew things weren't right when a second-grade teacher told him and his classmates to pray. Now, how awful that kids are the bystanders who are now tasked with giving people like me and all of us adults the details about this tragedy. Edward Timothy joins me now or joined me with his mom, Amberlyn Diaz. I'm so glad to speak to both of you this evening, but I have to tell you, our hearts are so full for the entire community. And I, and Edward Timothy, if I can just start with you. I mean, my little girl, who is only eight years old, first she wanted me to say hello, and she hopes that you know that other little kids are thinking about you all today. How are you doing, Edward Timothy? How are you feeling right now? Well, I was feeling better before the day that happened. And I'm a little more better because I'm with my mom and my dad and my, my brother. I'm a little brother with my family now when I got to meet them again. For a while, you weren't able to see them because you were inside of the school. Can you tell me a little bit about what that was like? What were you hearing, Edward Timothy? Well, I was like hearing like loud noises. What like, did you was, think like, those really were? Loud. What did you think they were? Well, well, at first they sounded like, like, like something like was popping, like when kind of were, like fireworks. Oh, so when you heard the firework type sounds, you think it was far away from you or close to you? It was like, it, I heard like it like a little like far, but I heard it like really loud. So it was like I louder. heard it like following me. Edward Timothy, was your teacher with you First when you heard saw, the sounds? Uh, yeah. Well, um, at first the, a lady came to the, the, the classroom and knocked, knocked on our doors with a purple shirt. She said, go and hide, and we turned off all the lights and went to the back of the classroom and put desk in front of us, and we were hiding. Did you know when the lady with the purple shirt came over, did you know why you were having to hide and close the door and turn off the lights? Yes, I learned that we were having a, a real drill because we've Had practiced a lot, and I think we we say we were safe because we practiced. How many times had you had to practice a drill like that before? Well, we 
started in kindergarten. Since kindergarten, you've been practicing this drill, and that made you feel safer. Mom, when you hear your son describing that they sounded like firecrackers, he's been practicing a drill something like this for several years now, what goes through your mind as a, as a mother? Yes, um, I just felt really bad that he had to go through this. Um, any No kid should go through this. Um, the fear of your child being in that classroom, to me, um, in my pos um, position, I was, somebody had told me that the shooter was next door to my son. And what was going through my mind was the shooter was going to be shooting everywhere and one of the bullets was going to sh um, shoot him and kill him. So that's when I completely lost it. Um, the teacher had texted me maybe like 40 minutes later that they were on the way to the Civic Center. So in that, um, in that moment, I was a little bit okay, but then I had to rush over there to make sure, you know, I had to see him to believe him, to believe them. And um, once I saw him getting off that bus, um, I was okay. Yes. That must have been excruciating for that 40-minute period to be waiting yeah. to actually hold him in your arms, to see him, to know that he was safe. Um, Tim, Edward, Timothy, what were you thinking? How long did it feel like that you were waiting to leave the school? And, and how did you get out of the school? Well, we were running out of the doors because, like, two police guards were um, covering our doors if the shooter was going to come in. Uh, and then they were just, we just ran out of the room whenever the cops told us to run. You didn't just, care about cutting no, we just started to run. All of us started to run. Did your teacher tell you to pray at some point? Yes, I was praying, thinking, why is this happening? What did you, when you were praying and asking, why do you think this is happening, were other children in your class praying as well? Yes, I was praying in my head, though. What were the other kids in your class doing when you were hearing those pops and you were praying in your head? Well, I, though, my other classmates were pray, were um, crying. Did you ever see the person who was shooting? No, I didn't see him. Did you see the other kids in the other classroom? Um, yeah, we all, every classroom ran out of their classrooms. How are you feeling now? I mean, did you, how did you sleep last night? Well, I was sleeping with my mom and dad again because I was a little scared. What are you afraid of now, Edward Timothy? Well, I have the fear of, um, guns now because I'm scared someone might shoot me. Amber, when you hear your son say that, had he expressed that to you before ever, his, his fear? No. Huh? No, this is my first time hearing this. What's that like hearing that? It breaks my heart. Did you know some of the other children, Amber? Um, no, not personally. 
I know that this is very emotional. It, it broke your heart to hear your son say he was afraid. Yes. Amber, what do you, what do you want to happen? I just don't want my, because he was asking me, does he have to go to school next year? And I just don't want him to be afraid of school. I want him to continue learning and not be scared, you know, of going back to school. Yes. I want him to have a normal life again. And yes. And Berlin, it breaks my heart as a mom to see and hear this. I know my own children have to do these drills as well in school. Um, beginning for the, the same age, beginning in kindergarten, and I, I, it, it's just so hard to hear a child have to go through this. If I can just ask you one more question, Edward Timothy, what would make you feel better? Anything? Well, I already am better a little, yeah. I'm, I'm already better. And I'm so glad I got to speak with both of you, and of course our heart is breaking for the children who we would love to speak to you today as well. Amberlynn, Edward Timothy, thank you. I hope that when you go back to school, Edward Timothy, you are not afraid and that you get to live out all the dreams you want. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I watch these scenes of memorials um, of grief, and I wonder where do the families of the 21 fallen go to find justice. That's next. For the families of the 21 killed in Uvalde, the truth is the person who ripped their lives apart will never stand trial and never do time. If someone is to be held accountable for this tragedy, the question is who and how? That moves us from the lawmakers to now the court of law. And that's where Ellie Honig comes in. Ellie, thank you for joining me tonight. You know, my number one question when you think about this, we know what Congress is thinking about doing, but what would be the legal recourse for the parents knowing that the suspect is dead? Yeah, Laura, like you said, there will be no criminal case here, of course. So the only legal recourse can be in the civil courts where the parents can file lawsuits. Now, who might they sue? Can't sue the, sue the shooter. Of course, he's dead. His family's not going to have anywhere near enough money to pay a verdict. The, the parents, however, could potentially sue the city, the school board, even the police. Now, that's a high legal standard. They'd have to show what we call reckless disregard for the safety of the children. A lot of this is going to turn on the story that's developing now about specifically what the police did and when. And the other option for the parents, Laura, and it's a difficult one legally, is to sue the gun manufacturers. There is some history of this being done. Texas state law and federal law, though, make that very difficult. But it is something the parents can do to try to get some measure of justice. Part of that history is an analogy people are now raising, of course, this is reminiscent of what happened at Sandy Hook, another elementary school. The parents in the Sandy Hook shootings, they also tried to do this in terms of gun manufacturers. Did that work out? Yeah, now Remington, the, the gun manufacturer which was sued, did settle that case for $73 million. The difference was that case was brought under Connecticut state law, which is much more open and forgiving to this type of lawsuit than Texas state law and federal law. So yes, there is precedent for gun manufacturers paying out enormous settlements in this kind of lawsuit. 
So we're clear, of course, we're talking about settlements. This is obviously no replacement for the precious lives that have been lost, but this is one of the methods for having some sort of accountability. The Supreme Court, we always watch, Ellie, and look to what's on their docket, what might be the next term. What has the Supreme Court had to say about issues like this, especially the Second Amendment? Are we seeing something changing on the horizon? Yeah, Laura. Well, first things first. The Second Amendment is very broad, but it is not unlimited. Don't take that from me. That's a quote from Justice Antonin Scalia. He said back in 2008, the Second Circuit is not unlimited. The, the, excuse the, the Second Amendment is not unlimited. Now, the question is, where is the Supreme Court going to draw the line, Laura? Over the last 15 years, it's only moved one direction towards broader gun rights. They have ruled over the last 15 years, essentially, that there's an unlimited right for people to to possess a handgun in the home for legal purposes. Now, there's a decision pending right now that could expand that to carrying firearms on the person for legal purposes. And I think what's happening here is the Supreme Court's forgetting a quote from Justice Scalia, where he said, it is not a right to keep and carry any weapon whatsoever for any manner whatsoever, for any purpose whatsoever. And so that's a quote from Justice Scalia. It seems the Supreme Court is moving away from that, however. And yet as a nation, we're moving closer and closer to this being so prevalent that it is haunting to a civilized society. The loss of life immeasurable. Ellie Honig, thank you so much. Thanks, Laura. Thank you for watching. Don Lemon Tonight, live from Uvalde, Texas, starts right now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.